across the street from me. There was no other, we didn't have any other things in common. I mean, we were the same age. She was a few months older, which was always like when you're, a, you know, like an eight-year-old, somebody being a few months older is really frustrating because it feels like they've got all the power in the relationship. But Grady was just a few months older than me, and he lived across the street, and we did everything together, everything that we could possibly do. And uh, Grady moved when I was about I don't know, probably 10 years old. He moved away. His family moved to a different city. And that was kind of the end. I, I, we, never, we never saw each other again. I think maybe once, you know, we saw each other in passing. And so for the last eight years, this is a true story, for the last eight years, once uh, Facebook came out, I have been searching for Grady. I have been looking for Grady on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter and every social media site that I can find. Now, here's the tricky part. You would think, like, you found a lot of your childhood friends on Facebook when Facebook first came out, and you, like, friended them, and then you realized you didn't really have anything in common, so you're now friends with them, and you know who their kids are, but you don't ever talk or do anything or hang out. But I looked for Grady, and I cannot find Grady. It's like Grady is in witness protection. Like, his family did something terrible, and he had to go into hiding. And now, this is true. Um, when Grady moved, their family, this is a true story, you can ask my mom to, to confirm this, their family changed their last name when they moved. And so I knew Grady as one name, and then now I was trying to search for him with a different last name, and I didn't know how to spell it, I didn't know anything. Well, within the last couple of months, I found someone that I think has the right last name, and boy, his Facebook pictures as I stalk look like it's probably my childhood friend. I've looked through all his pictures just trying to make sure that this is him. And so I sent him a message, and I was like, is this the Grady that grew up on, you know, across the street from me in Eugene, Oregon? Is this that Grady? Nothing. Silence. I think what happened is I scared the FBI, and the family had to go into (laughs) hiding. They had to change their name again. Either that or it's not the same guy. I don't know. But that was my, that was my, that was my best friend growing up. And I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this because friendships either happen naturally or they just don't happen. And sometimes that's a source of pain and frustration for people. But we were, as human beings, we were made. We were created. I believe we were created by God for friendship. We were made for friendship. You were made to have friends. You were made to be friends with that kid next door. You were made to be friends with potentially people from work or with your neighbors. You were created. We were made for friendship. And that's kind of the premise of what we're going to be talking about today. We were made for this. And I know when I say that, some of you are like, oh, I don't know. Because friendship is one of those weird things that it's probably one of the few things that we actually get worse at as we grow older. It's one of the few things that we actually get worse at as we grow older. You can go to the next slide if you want. I'm going to have to have him on the ball here this morning. We were made for friendship. But it's one of the things we get worse at as we grow older. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but when you're a little kid, friendships come easy. We take Liam to the park, and he runs around the park, and he finds someone about the same height, and he's, that's, the, that's his friend, and he'll run over to us, and he'll be like, hey, Daddy, look, I found a friend. I found a friend. And we'll say, hey, Liam, what's your friend's name? And he'll be like, I don't know. We hadn't gotten to that point in our relationship yet. That's not important to this friendship. And then we'll leave the park. And they don't exchange contact information. They're just done. And then they go to the next park and they find another friend. Kids make friends easy. It's, it's, it's not a problem for them. Um, and then as kids get older, you know, kind of that junior high, middle school, there's a little more complexity, but there's still generally a lot of friendships. But it, it's a little bit more complex as they try to find their way and navigate through that, Right. And I learned this uh, being, working with youth group. I thought, and I was terribly mistaken, I thought you, ha- you had a best friend 
Like, I thought there was a best friend, but if you interact with junior high, high school girls, you, maybe all girls, I don't know, maybe this is just a female thing, you're going to have lots of best friends. Because they'll talk about, like, this is my best friend, and this is my best friend. You're like, wait a second, that was your best friend. How is this person your best friend? Oh, and this person is my best friend from, you know, from camp. And this person is my best friend from, you know, AP English. And this person, like, wait a second. Best friend is like a single occupancy category. How do you have best friends everywhere? And I don't know, maybe everybody just kind of gets promoted. Like, do you have any regular friends? Or are they all best friends? Like, is it all, does everybody move up into that category? But it could be tough too, middle school, high school. It could be tough. There can be difficulty. You may remember your uh, sixth grade, seventh grade years, and you may have found that there was some difficulty there. And you, as a parent now with your kids, you may try to give your kids advice, but this is the truth. Adults are the worst at friendships of all the categories. Adults are the worst at friendships. In fact, there have been some studies that have been done, and it shows that adults are particularly bad. In fact, uh, over the the course of the last 30 years, there's 60% less Uh, people that we consider as adults in our friend category. We have 60% less people that we put in that category. We have fewer friends than when we did when they did these studies just 30 years ago. We have fewer friends, despite the opportunity to to spread uh, our relationships around with social media. We have fewer friends. 25% of all American adults say they don't have a single close friend. Now, I kind of feel lonely (laughs) thinking about that, like a single close friend. And I think that potentially for some people in this room, when they think about that category, they think, I don't know. I'm not sure that I have someone. I have acquaintances. I have people I'm friendly with, but I don't know if I have a friend. I don't know if I have a friendship. But we were made for friendship. And I'm going to say something that may not be true for all of you, but I think it's certainly true for enough of us that we've got to talk about it. And it's this. It's that we were made shit for friends, but friendship is difficult. Friendship is hard. But it's not impossible. Friendship is hard, but it's not impossible. We are in uh, part three of a series that we're calling Credits. And what we're doing is we're looking at the life of David. He was this iconic character in the Bible. I mean, everybody wants to be like David. Uh, David fought the giant. David was this, you know, this incredible character in Scripture. But David was shaped by God through different relationships that he had in his life. He was shaped by God. We talked about two weeks ago through Samuel. He was shaped in adversity by a guy named Saul that you talked about last week. Uh, David was shaped by other characters in his life. It wasn't like David was just kind of striking out on his own and he was just this person completely devoid of any of uh, uh, influences of the people around him. But I would say, and I might argue, that one of David's most influential relationships was what David would, he would have to define as his best friend. Does anybody know who David's best friend was? Jonathan. You know that. You know Jonathan because of David, because of this amazing sort of epic friendship that they had. And uh, I think that there are a few surprising elements that are universal to great friendships. And I want to be careful because what we're going to look at today is not a formula. We're not looking at like the, the three ways that you can gain a BFF just like Jonathan. We're not, this, is not, this is not what this is about. But we're going to look at this story. And I think there's some universal elements within this story that help us understand what it is to seek out and to be better friends. So if you feel like you're one of those 25% of Americans that falls in this category of you don't have a close friend, I think this is helpful. If you're one of those people that's a 75% that's, well, I've I've got friends, I still think this is helpful because this makes you a better friend, a more influential friend to the, the friends that you have. So let's start in the book of Samuel. 
1 Samuel chapter 8, if you'd turn over there. 1 Samuel chapter 18, rather, if you'd turn over there. 1 Samuel 18. This is right after 1 Samuel 17, and something important happens in that chapter. But 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan, this is Saul's son, became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as, as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. It sounds like a kidnapping when you read it that way. But he was invited into the king's court. Verse 3, And Jonathan uh, made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his tunic. He had undergarments on. Don't worry, I know what you're thinking. Along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Now, within these four verses... I think contain these elements of friendship that were, were true throughout the life of David and Jonathan. We're going to look at a couple other verses that kind of exemplify that. But I think just in these four short verses are these elements, I think universal probably, elements of friendship that I think are going to be helpful to us just to kind of think through a little bit. So first of all, 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. 1 Samuel 18 verse 1. Jonathan became one in spirit with David and he loved him as himself. I don't know if you've ever read through the life of David, but David was one of those guys. How many of you are watching the Olympics? Yeah. And you see these guys, and they're winning gold medals, and you're just like, and they're, you know, they're just in great shape, and they're good looking. And then they do these backstories, and you find out that they're also like great guitar players, and they're also really, you know, they got these amazing hobbies, and you're just like, that's... I don't, I don't like you anymore. You're too, there's, there's too, you have too much. You have too much. I have zero of those talents and you have them all. That's not fair. Like you cannot have all the talents and then we get nothing. That doesn't seem fair. Like you're good looking and you're the, you know, you're the best swimmer in the world and you're, you know, whatever. I'm not talking about Michael Phelps. I don't think he's that good looking. <laughs> he's okay. He's okay if you want my opinion. But David was kind of one of those guys. David was one of those guys that could do it all. He literally could do it all. He was this like kind of, this warrior, kind of this iconic like version of a warrior, it seems like. And everybody looked at him and they thought, David, this guy's amazing. The Bible, the Bible even takes the time to say that David was good looking. Like, come on, you're a warrior, you're good looking. And then it tells us that David was really good playing the harp. Like, he was so good, the king invited him into his court to play him, to calm him down. Like, I don't know what the, the harp, I mean, I've heard the harp. I don't know if they had, like, is that the, first, you know, the early B.C. version of the guitar? You know, guys who are really good at the guitar, is that, is that what that is? But David, he was good looking. He was a warrior. He could play the harp, I guess, if that's something that you like. And it just felt, it feels like he has it all. Like, like it's just all kind of uh, there for him. Now, he's the type of person that we would look at, and I think we would typically be jealous of a little bit. And Saul certainly had that problem. But Saul's son, for some reason, did not. Saul's son looked at David, and something clicked. They found that they had, or, or Jonathan looked at him and found that there was something that they had that in, in common. And I don't know if you've ever had that experience with a relationship. Have you ever been interacting with someone and then all of a sudden, you know, you're being polite and you're talking about the, the normal things. But then there's the, the conversation goes to a place where you realize that you and this person have like a deeper connection. Like you and this person have something in common that you didn't realize. And you're like, oh, I, I like this person because they like the same style of music or they like doing the same things or whatever it is. But there's some sort of reason for this deeper connection. And I think what we know, what Jonathan and David had in common. Because a few verses earlier, 
Jonathan had this, had this experience that I think reveals a little bit about who he was. Now, you know what happened in verse seven, chapter 17 of 1 Samuel, right? You know what happened. David and Goliath, right? David exhibits this, I, I won't even say slightly. David exhibits this insane faith in front of two different armies who were at war. And he charges at this giant and all the Israelite soldiers are on the hill like, that guy is crazy and he's about to get crushed. And all the Philistine soldiers are on the other hill like, that, that guy's crazy and he's about to get crushed. And then he takes down the giant and the Israelite soldiers are like, what? That's unbelievable. That's amazing. The Philistine soldiers are like, whoa, boy, if that's what their little kids can do, we're in trouble and they all book it and they all take off. I mean, it's an amazing story. Everybody's watching. I mean, it's the highlight reel for, you know, it shows up on YouTube. Everybody's talking about it. It's just this amazing event that occurred. It's incredible. And Jonathan sees that, and he sees something. This, in, verse, in verse 1 of chapter 18, David, Saul and David had just talked, but it says Jonathan became one in spirit. He saw this thing in David that I think he himself wanted. Now, on the down low, about uh, four chapters earlier, three or four chapters earlier, there's the story of what Jonathan had done in chapter 14. Because Jonathan had done some. You could probably argue that what Jonathan had done was even more crazy than what David had done. Jonathan took his servant, his armor bearer, and he went to the bottom of a a cliff. And he said, at the top of this cliff, there's this Philistine outpost with a bunch of Philistine soldiers. I bet you God can can take out those soldiers just using the two of us. What do you think? And his armor bearer is like, let's do it, man. I got your back. Let's do this. So they climb to the top of the cliff, and they do it. And there's this whole cool little story in chapter 14. I've got uh, one verse up there. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let us go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. That's what they called everybody that wasn't Jewish. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing, this is so cool, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And those words could be in the mouth of David. David and Jonathan had this, this insane faith in God that they had in common. And I think when Jonathan saw David run down that hill and charge at that giant, he was like, that's, I like that. That's what I want in my life. That's what I value. That's what I'm pursuing. That's, I, there, here's somebody else that God is working through mightily, and I, I have that, and I want that. And they were one in spirit. They were one in spirit. God working through David, God working through Jonathan. C.S. Lewis wrote, Friendship is born at the moment when one person says to another, What? You too? I thought I was the only one. And I think Jonathan, he didn't have the greatest example in his dad. And I think he looked at David and he said, what, you too? You're willing to do this crazy stuff for God? You're willing to let God work through you in that way? Me too, I thought I was the only one. And they, were, they became one in spirit. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 26 says this. It says, the righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked leads them astray. The righteous choose their friends carefully. It, the, the, the word literally means to spy out their friends, to spy out their friends. Now, parents, we do that with our children's friends. Hmm, I don't know. I, uh, I really have to, to take some time to observe the, uh, the behavior of this child in the wild before I know whether or not this is a relationship that I want to promote. We do that with our children's friends. The righteous choose their children's friends carefully. But it says the righteous choose their friends. They spy out their friends carefully. But it says the, the, the way of the wicked, and I would, I would say it implies the companionship of the wicked leads them astray. I think Jonathan saw in David something he wanted in himself, and he knew that that relationship would help develop that in himself. 
I, I think that that's what's going on. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Walk with the wise and become wise, but a, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Walk with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fool suffers harm. I think you could modify that verse a little bit. Walk with the faithful and become faithful. Walk with people who are great parents and become a better parent. Walk with people who are, who are uh, excellent at loving their spouses and become better, a better husband, a better wife. Walk with the wise and become wise. Choose your friends carefully. Let me ask you this question. What if our decision to grow in faith and spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness was or is a decision to walk with people for whom those are destinations as well? We know this is true for our children. We intuitively know this is true. I want you to stay away from that kid over there. They are going to end up in prison someday. Stay away from them. But, but, but why don't we do this for ourselves? People that we respect people that we honor, people whose faith that, that we think exemplifies a Christ-likeness? What if our decision to grow in faith, to be more like Christ, was a decision to walk with people for whom that was a destination as well? That we be one in spirit with those people. What if that was? What if part of our spiritual growth was friendship? I don't know that we think about that. I don't know that we pursue friendship as a means to spiritual growth. It goes on to say in this passage um, uh, that, well, here, I guess I'll get to that in a second. How many of you have an unreliable friend? Now, you, you take that all seriously, but how many of you have a friend that you're like, I love you, but I am never, ever, ever, ever going to ask you to pick me up from the airport, right? Because they will not be there to pick you up. In fact, you'll be waiting at gate number six, and you'll be like, where are they? And you'll text, where are you? I'm, I'm here, I'm waiting, and they'll text back you know, on my way, and you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they're sitting on their couch like finishing their chips or whatever. They haven't even left their house yet. They're unreliable. On my way. They're thinking about leaving. They're this unreliable friend. They're, they're so unreliable that they're reliably unreliable. You know what I mean? Have you ever gone out to, to dinner with a person like this and they're like, oh yeah, I, I didn't bring my wallet. You know, will you just cover and I'll pay you back? And you're like, I'm never... I'm never going to see any of this money. Again, this is a charitable donation. I should get a tax write-off for paying for lunch for you because it's not, I'm not getting paid back. I remember having a friend that uh, suggested a bunch of us go out to lunch one time. Like, hey, let's all go out to lunch. This one guy suggested, let's all go out to lunch. We're all like, yeah, it sounds great. So we got to the restaurant, and that particular friend didn't order anything. We're sitting there like, you know, are you going gonna to order something from the waitress? He's like, no, I don't have any money. What? You suggested that we all go. Did you discover on the way that you didn't have any money like with you? Did you forget your wallet? No, no, he doesn't have any money in his bank account. And I'm thinking, and we didn't say this, but because of his reliable unreliableness, that we were like, you did this on purpose. You were hoping we got, we didn't say this, nobody says this, right? But you were hoping we got to the restaurant and we would feel sorry for you because you got that hound dog look on your face because we're all eating delicious hamburgers and you're sitting there with nothing. That one of us would say, oh, I'll pay for you. And you would say, okay, I'll get you back. And then you would never pay us back. But we had experienced this. He was so reliably unreliable that we're just like, nah, stinks to be you eating our hamburgers. <laughs> reliably unreliable. 1 Samuel 
1 Samuel 18, 3 says, And Jonathan made a covenant. This is like, they, they, they immediately become friends. Jonathan's like, David, I really like you, man. Let's make a covenant. That's kind of a strange turn to make when you first meet somebody. You've got to like, maybe we should go out to dinner first. Maybe we should get coffee. Maybe we should talk about, you know, you know what do we do for a living? But Jonathan's like, let's make a covenant. Let's make a covenant here. And, and, and it's probably a good thing that we don't do that. Um, but I was thinking about, like, what if we did that? What if we were, like, met somebody and we're like, uh, hey, you know, I really like you, but before we begin, you know, get too close, I got this uh, contract I'd really love for you to sign. It stipulates here that you're going to pick me up on the air- at the airport on time. You're always going to have your, your wallet available for every meal. Um, you were just, you know, would you please sign this before we get too close? Because I don't, you know, I don't want an un- another unreliable friend. Um, but what they were doing, what they were doing in this, this establishing this covenant was more than just, you know, it was more than just this like weird sort of like, do you have to have a covenant? But they were establishing what every relationship needs. They were establishing that this relationship requires trust. That's what every relationship needs, that we trust. The reason we can still be friends with those unreliable people is that because we trust that they're not going to be there and we plan for that. But there needs to be some sort of element of trust between two people. Proverbs 18.24 has so much to say about friendship, which is why we know that these, these relationships are important to God. But Proverbs 18.24 says, One who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. Hey, buddy, can you help me out? I cannot help you out. Ah, oh, that's terrible. You're unreliable. But there is a friend who sticks closer, to a bro- the, closer than a brother. There's a friend who sticks closer to a brother. And I, I don't think this is specifically, but man, when I read that verse, I, I, I feel Jesus in that verse, don't you? I don't know that, that the author was writing that, but I feel that. Like, that, that there's this friend who sticks closer than, an, than a brother. But here's the dilemma that we have. This is the dilemma that you have. This is the dilemma that I have. This is the dilemma that our culture creates for us. We want trustworthy friends. We want that. We want trustworthy friends. But we struggle with putting ourselves in any situation that require us to rely on someone else. We want trustworthy friends. We just don't want to have to put ourselves in a situation where we're dependent on them to come through for us. We don't want that. And this is why sometimes when it happens, when you find yourself in a pickle and that friend comes through for you, you're almost like humbled that they would do that because they would come through for you in this situation. Like you, you weren't sh- sure that relationship existed in that way. And when that happens, when you, when you understand that, that that trust, that foundation of trust is like actually there, it's not just an illusion, it feels so good because you feel like, well, maybe I'm not alone. But you have relationships where you're not sure you can trust the person because you've never put yourself in a position where you needed to trust that person. And you want deep friendships, you want trustworthy friends, but we're unwilling to risk anything. For us, in these relationships, there's this risk of hurt or rejection. For David and Jonathan, there was a literal risk of death, because they would find out that on paper, they should be enemies. They should not be, have a relationship, because David was eventually going to become king, and Jonathan should have been come, become king by all rights. They had reasons to kill the other person. And no wonder they kept making covenants. No wonder David kept saying like, all right, Jonathan, buddy, I, I trust you. I love you. But will you please sign this covenant one more time? I just want to make sure you're not going to kill me, you know? And they, they constantly had to put themselves in situations where they were trusting one another. They had to do that. But we don't do that. We don't confess to one another. 
We don't tell anybody our secrets. I'll deal with it. I'll get it. I'll figure it out. We don't want to actually put that sort of trust in someone else. We don't even confess to our close friends. We don't even reveal deep parts of ourselves to people that we might even categorize as a best friend. We want trustworthy relationships, but we don't want to risk. We don't want to, to, to do anything that, that, that's going to hurt, reject. I want to ask you a question. What if the lack of depth in our friendships is a direct reflection of our unwillingness to build trust through risk? What if, that, what if that's the case? David put his life in Jonathan's hands on many occasions. Jonathan put his life in David's hands on many occasions. We're unwilling even to put our secrets in another person's hand. We're unwilling to put anything in anybody's hands because we're afraid we're going to get hurt. What if our lack of depth in relationships is a direct reflection of our unwillingness to build trust through risk? You might get hurt. Could happen. Maybe you have been hurt, and you're like, that was such a terrible experience, I'm never going to be deep friends with anybody ever again. Well, you're going to be one of those 25% of the Americans that don't have a close friendship. But we were built for this. 1 Samuel 18.4, let's move on. 1 Samuel 18.4. Jonathan took off his robe he was wearing, and he gave it to David along with his tunic, and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. Now, Jonathan is simply ratifying this covenant of trust. That's what he's doing. He's like, listen, I promise, this is a covenant. Here's my, here, he, you can have my robe. Yeah, I, this, it's my robe. It's a special robe. Here you go. Here's my robe. Oh, and my tunic too. I don't even know what that was, but I don't know if he's just standing there in his underwear now. Like, hey, I trust you completely. Here you go. Have it all. And then it says, notice it says, even his sword. Because this was a significant thing as well. Now, I don't know if they had more swords at this point, but a few chapters earlier, it tells us, the Bible tells us there were two swords in the entire Israelite army. Two. Saul had one, and Jonathan had one. And so Jonathan's like, look, dude, you can even have my sword. One of two swords, if that's still the case. We don't know for sure. And his bow and his belt, all his weapons. Here, this is, in a, this is trust exemplified. I'm going to give this to you. But I think it gives us an illustration of what that trust requires or what relationships require, and that is sacrifice. That is sacrifice. And there's this great story from the Olympics. I mean, obviously there's great stories from all the Olympics, right? You've been watching all those things. You see the, the two, I think it was the 1,500-meter runners, and one girl falls, and another girl falls, and they help each other up, and one girl's, you know, got like a broken knee or whatever, and they finish the race. It's just like this sweet thing, just this amazing moment. But there's moments like that in almost every Olympics. And I was reading about the Olympics, about the history of the Olympics, and there's this amazing story from the, and you probably already know this, I'm probably the last person at the party, from the 1936 Olympics in Berlin. Now, 1936 Olympics, you can imagine, it was in Berlin. Nazi party was on the rise. Hitler was there presiding over everything. And we sent our best athletes. And one of our best athletes was this guy named Jesse Owens. And they made a movie about him recently. But I was reading about what, some of what Jesse Owens said. He said this himself. Whether or not it's true, I guess you can take... But Jesse Owens, this is him competing in the long jump. But he talked about this situation. So... Germany has this Nazi ideal. Tall, angular, blue eyes, blonde hair, and he's the guy that they want to dominate. And here is this Jesse Owens that is not the Nazi ideal, kind of dominating. And they're coming down to the long jump. It's Jesse Owens, and it's this guy named Luz Long. Um, I, and they're, they're, Jesse Owens is trying to qualify, and this is according to him. You know, this is the dominance of the Aryan race, and there's a lot at stake, you know, in these Olympics. You can go to the next slide if you want. This is Lose Long, or Luz Long, maybe. 
Um, so according to Owens, he's in this qualifying round of the long jump, and you get three chances to have your best jump to make it to the next level. And Jesse Owens said that he had foot faulted twice, meaning that he had stepped over the line for the jump, and it disqualified that jump, even though it was plenty of distance. And so he was sitting there thinking, man, I got to make this, or I'm not going to make it to the next round. And then Luz Long, Luz Long, Mr. Long, let's just call him Mr. Long, because I don't know how to pronounce his first name. He comes over to him, and he's like, hey, man, you know, I don't think he said, hey, man, but whatever. Comes over to him, he's like, hey, just jump far back from the line. Your distances are plenty enough to get you qualified. You don't have to step so close to the line. Make sure you qualify for the next round. Just step way back from the line to make sure you qualify. It's in your head. You got this. Goes over to this guy that should be his sworn enemy, right, according to Nazi standards, and says, let's do this. Like, you got this. And so Jesse Owens qualifies and then ends up winning the long jump. I have this next picture up here. And, uh, and guess who gets silver? The guy that gave him the good advice, right? Gets, ends up with silver. Hitler's looking on, you know, and the, 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 the hope of, of the German race gets silver. And Jesse Owens is there atop of the podium because this guy had sacrificed to give him good advice. If he just kept his mouth shut, maybe he would have been disqualified. Would have been easy. All that glory could have gone to him. There's another, uh, one more picture I want to show you of the two of them together talking. Jesse Owens said that after he won, Long came up to him and embraced him in front of the crowd. Like gave him a big old hug in front of the crowd. Wow. That's, that's, pretty, that's, that's pretty bold. This is, the, this is the enemy, so to speak, Right? And gave him a hug in front of the crowd. Congratulated him. Uh, Owens, this is an, a quote. He said, It took a lot for him to befriend me in front of Hitler. You can melt down all my medals, and they wouldn't be plating on the 24-carat friendship I felt for long. Kind of special. I see in that story Jonathan and David. I see Jonathan sacrificing his position, sacrificing himself to promote David, to give David this position that, that, that God was eventually going to establish him in. I see that. There's a cool uh, verse in 1 Samuel 23. It's a few chapters later. David's been on the run from Saul. You heard about that last week a little bit with Jordan. David's been hiding out in caves and just this, all, all this crazy stuff. Saul's trying to kill him. Jonathan's been trying to talk Saul out of it. He's like, seriously, Dad, David's a good guy. Will you please stop trying to kill him? And Saul's like, nope, he's, he's too good. He must die. I'm afraid for my throne, you know. And in 1 Samuel 23, it says uh, Saul was, was trying to, to kill David again. It says, well, David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph. He learned that Saul had come out to take his life. So David's in hiding again, you know, trying to uh, avoid Saul. And it says Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David, had to sneak out to him because, I mean, this is treason. This is, the, this is public enemy number one for Saul had to sneak out to him and went to David at Horesh and helped him find strength in God. Helped him find strength in God. Jonathan constantly sacrificed for David. Friends have to sacrifice for one another. Sometimes I think we are confused. I think people in this room are confused and frustrated by their lack of friendships. But I wonder if in reality we aren't willing to make the sorts of sacrifices that great friendship requires. I wonder if we are unwilling to make the sort of sacrifices that great friendship requires. Time, energy, expectations of what a friend is and does and how they behave. 
We put so much, de- so much demand on other people, our schedule. John Ortberg writes, you're mistaken if you think that you can fit a friendship into the cracks of the overloaded schedule. Like so many things in life, right? It comes down to our time and our priorities. It takes time to mourn with those who mourn, like Romans says. It takes time to rejoice with those who rejoice. It takes time to listen to people talking about their sins and their struggles. What if our problem in our relationships isn't being unable to find the right friends, but being unable to make the sacrifices that great friendship requires? Long died in 1943 fighting for the German army, but he and Owens continued to... uh, uh, correspond, and uh, the last letter that he wrote before he died to Owens, Owens shared a little bit, and he said, someday to Owens, longs to Owens, someday find my son and tell him how things can be between men on the earth. Friendships are possible. It's hard, but it's possible. So let's readdress those three questions I asked during the message real quick as we wrap up. Number one, what if our decision to grow in faith is a decision to be friends with people for whom that is a destination as well? Number two, what if our decision, uh, or rather, what if the lack of depth in our friendship is a direct reflection of our unwillingness to build trust through risk? And number three, what if our problem isn't being unable to find the right friends, but being unwilling to make the sacrifices that great friendship requires? This is not a how-to, it's not an ABCs of friendship, but it's just pointing out some elements that friendships uh, require, friendships expect. And you may not feel like you have good relationships. Maybe you do. Maybe you're not sure. Maybe you think, I think we do, but I just don't really know. I'm not sure yet. Just understand, we were made for friendships. Friendship is hard, but it's not as impossible. It's worth the risk. And I think, this is final challenge to you. I think there's a room full of people with whom you have something in common. It may not be age. It may not be family. It may not be demographics. But you have something in common that we are all, hopefully, walking to the same destination. We're all headed in the same direction despite our many differences. And there's a room full of people maybe you could develop friendships with. Maybe you've been going to church here for years and maybe now it's time to become friends with those people that you worship with. We're going to turn over our time to uh, to Dave. I think he's going to close us out in a word of prayer. But I challenge you to make friends. Dave? Um, Tana brought a prayer request for a friend from camp, Kaylee Warzeka. Some of you know the Warzekas, I believe. And um, she had a baby boy named Oliver. So we want to pray for them that they will grow in the Lord. Um, also, Jim Weisman had to go to ER, has a health issue, and that's just before they're getting ready to leave for Europe.